from Madison, Wisconsin in the United States of Global Hegemony, it's Didactic Syncast, with your host Eric P. What's up, Earthlings? Welcome to the Didactic Syncast, your weekly overview of everything important on the planet Earth. I'm Eric S. Piotrowski, a.k.a. Duke Scath in the world of video games, a.k.a. Scar Toll in the world of Wikipedia. Each week I bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and my opinions on topics like current events, war, human rights, economics, education, hip-hop music, and killer robots. So buckle up and let's get started. A little bit better than dope is A brand new kid to show biz With knowledge I persevere But for now do me a favor Let me in here And we can find a rhyme to fill in space And drop the bass with a tongue I am once again stuffing my mouth with delicious egg foods That the Duchess made this weekend uh, Some fantastic egg salad Which is really delicious And it's got a lot of dill in it And normally I'm not a huge dill fan But it really works in the egg salad So thank you Duchess Mmm we had our tour to Timor this week, uh, and it was fantastic. We raised $4,000 for our sister city project in East Timor. And uh, if you want to know more about that, you can go to aideasttimor.org. That's A-I-D-E-A-S-T-T-I-M-O-R.org. And there's information about our sister city project and the tour to Timor and other stuff. You can donate online if you couldn't make it to the ride. Why not donate a few bucks online with PayPal? It's easy. It's fun. All right, it's probably not very fun, but it's easy. And uh, the people who rode with us get free prizes, but if you donate a line, you don't get any free prizes. But you do get a warm feeling in the pit of your stomach that says, I helped out. And, of course, all the money that we raise goes right to our sister city group. Uh, we use it for scholarships for kids who can't afford to go to school because you got to pay in East Timor and, uh, the, you know, community medical care and agriculture programs and job training and all the rest of it. It's a really good sister city program. And, uh, I'm not just saying that because I helped to organize it. Uh, but anyway, uh, if you want to donate aid easttimor.org, there will be a link on the site. And, uh, yeah, thanks to everybody who came out to ride and everybody who showed support in other ways. And, uh, hopefully if you didn't make it this year, you can come on out and ride with us next year. Next year, not next week. We ain't doing this for another year, but in May 2013, we'll be back at it. So join us, why don't you? All right, let's talk about some current events. They say that Congress isn't willing to make the tough choices, but I think they are because we had a news story this week about how, uh, and this is from Business Week, where all of my news comes from. Uh, the United States House of Representatives has voted to cut food stamps, federal workers' benefits, and other domestic programs in order to avoid scheduled reductions in defense spending. So, you know, $700 billion uh, making planes we don't need, but never mind that. We need to cut food stamps. That's where the really important spending is taking place. Um, yeah, the I won't even go into the details. It's all about the super committee and stupid stuff. Uh, anyway, Representative Lloyd Doggett, a Texas Democrat, said, The Republican plan is one that asks nothing of Mr. Exxon, asks nothing more of hedge fund managers, but asks those who are most vulnerable in our society to share more pain. End quote. 
Uh, it also represents a political risk for Republicans. They say voters will reward them for making tough budget choices, but their plan is opposed by many outside groups. Of course, they're representing groups of people who, you know, get food stamps and are poor. And who cares about them, stupid poor people? Why don't you stop being poor? God, it's so annoying. In Syria this week, uh, there was a story about a series of blasts that took place and uh, this terrorist, excuse me, an Islamist group called al-Nusra said that it carried out two bomb attacks in the Syrian capital, Damascus. And the attacks that took place near a military intelligence building during the morning rush hour, killing 55 people. And, I mean, obviously, you know, in addition to contemning terrorism of all kinds, uh, this really sucks because it means that the Syrian government has some legitimacy for saying, like, oh, we need to protect people by locking everyone up without a trial and, you know, crazy uh, hopped-up charges. And um, the video says the bombings were in response to attacks on civilian areas by forces loyal to President Bashar al-Assad. And, you know, anybody who saw the movie uh, Romero, which is about... uh, uh, Oscar Romero, the, the Nobel Prize winning um, El Salvadoran priest, uh, really interesting guy. Um, you know, there's a scene in that movie where there are some gorillas who are talking with the, the bishop, and he's like, or the, the, I don't know if he was a bishop or whatever. He was a religious official. Um, anyway, they said, you know, look, the government soldiers are coming and killing our people. What are we supposed to do? You know, we're supposed to just let it happen. And, you know, Romero was a big advocate of nonviolence in the way that Martin Luther King was and Gandhi and the rest of them. And, you know, it's an important back and forth. And I don't blame people for being angry and wanting to take action when government violence strikes the people you love. Um, But of course the, the, the truth of, the story of East Timor and, and, and other examples of nonviolence has to do with the fact that nonviolence is a way to overturn those situations, whereas violent insurrection just continues the cycle of violence. And even if this group were to dislodge, uh, you know, uh, al-Assad from power, um, there would just be a new group of people in power who would have to maintain control with an iron fist. And only through a nonviolent uprising can we have an actual transformation of the situation and hope to, you know, change the consciousness of everybody involved and say, look, let's evolve past this tribalism and this sort of constant back and forth. So, you know, this group of people, they're not doing anything. Uh, they're not helping. And I mean, okay, let's not get it twisted. This is about Sunni versus Shiite, and the reason that they're bombing is because it's about, you know, we will tell the regime, stop your massacres against the Sunni people, you will bear the sin of the Alawites, and so on and so forth, and, you know, referring to the offshoot of Shia Islam, to which Mr. Assad and many of the ruling elite belong. So that's an extra wrinkle as well, and, and that goes back way further than, you know, this current political stuff. Anyway, um, yeah, there's the last thing in current events this week has been there's a, there's a new cache of evidence that was released in the Trayvon Martin shooting, and it showed that he had marijuana in his system. So obviously he deserved to be shot dead by Dwight Schrute. Um, there was also footage of Trayvon Martin at the convenience store released this week. And let me tell you something, folks. This is the most boring convenience store footage I've ever seen. And he's just buying a soda, of course, or the iced tea. So, duh. It's just so dull. And I'm, like, watching it thinking, why am I watching this? Who cares? It doesn't even, you know. But the interesting thing about this article that I saw from The Guardian was a quote from a detective named Chris Serino, uh, who was working in Sanford, and he said, the confrontation was, quote, entirely avoidable if Zimmerman had returned to his car or engaged Martin in conversation. 
And yeah, there's a lot of talk about how it's going to be really tough to get a second degree murder conviction for Zimmerman, especially with the stand your ground law. Uh, and I would hate to see him not get convicted of anything. Um, but I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. I think manslaughter would have been a little more likely, but whatever. I mean, it's too early to tell. And again, this is that thing where it's like every little thing that comes out, oh, someone sneezing in court, and let's have seven stories about it. Uh, whatever. Let's talk economics. This is where everything's been happening this week, man. Oh, my God. There's been so many stories. Uh, a lot of them to do with high-frequency trading. Oh, boy. Hang on. Warren Buffett's right-hand man compared high-frequency traders to rats in a granary. Now, if you don't know Warren Buffett, he's a really, really rich dude. He made all his money in the stock market, and he's very he's considered the shrewdest investor ever, and he's picked certain stocks that have just soared and done really, really well. And he's also established himself as being somebody who's argued that rich people should be taxed more, which is a little unusual, but I mean, hey, it's true. Um, so anyway, he's sort of in some limelight right now. Uh, so I thought it was interesting that his right-hand man, uh, what was his name? Charlie Munger, vice chairman of Buffett's company, Berkshire Hathaway. He said, uh, he was on an interview on CNBC's Squawk Box. And he said, taking the rapid trading by the computer geniuses with the computer algorithms, those people have all the social utility of a bunch of rats admitted to a granary. So the more I hear from these, you know, obviously people who know what they're talking about, uh, about how there is no use to uh, high frequency trading, I'm not willing to say that there's absolutely none because I like to give people the benefit of the doubt and I don't like to think that there's people who are motivated totally by vampire-like leeching off the lifeblood of other people, but that's what it sounds like more and more as I look into this stuff. Meanwhile, CNBC had a big long article called Profit and Danger in Milliseconds, and it was all about high-frequency trading, and I'm going to read an extended clip because I think it's fascinating, and I encourage you to read the whole thing. It's about this guy named Eric Scott Hunsader, and it starts by saying he's gone completely down the rabbit hole, and he doesn't like what he's finding there. Um, markets today, he says, are more susceptible to sudden failure than they were two years ago during the so-called flash crash, which brought the stock market down, blah, blah, blah. A new breed of trader armed with hundreds of millions of dollars to deploy is trading so fast and with such spikes in volume, he can dry up liquidity in an instant, causing severe price swings. There was a so there they talk about this um, release of government jobs report that happens every month. Yeah, they they say okay, you know, there's this many unemployment and people filing for new unemployment claims and all the rest of it. Uh, and the article says this: the release of that jobs report is traditionally one of the most dramatic market moving events of each month. As a result, traders tend to lie low in the minute or so before the number comes out at 8:30 a.m. on the first Friday of each month, so they don't get caught when the market changes. However, on May 4th of this year, Hunsader said he spotted those traders just before the April number was released, these highest frequency traders, at 829.20 and about 200 milliseconds. So notice how they're doing this now. They're talking about time, not in terms of seconds, not in terms of about hundredths of a second, but they're tracing the activity of people at certain milliseconds along this timeline. We're going deeper and deeper into the zooming in of the timeline to see how people are making this money. 
And it's it any wonder normal people without these microscopes can't tell what the heck's going on? And regulators don't, you know, they're not using these microscopes. They're just sort of, oh, it's swinging. We don't know. Anyway, so he says uh, at 8, 29, 20, and 200 milliseconds, someone, he has no way of knowing who, executed a trade in the five-year T-note futures market worth about $150 million. Now, I have no idea what the five-year T-note futures market is. But it went on to say a chart of that single second in the market of that single second, they're making charts of single seconds, uh, shows that the prices are relatively stable until the trade. And just after that, for the rest of the second, prices spike and gyrate up and down as other automated high-speed computers react to the trade. So we're talking about people who are starting this volatility that other computing algorithms then respond to. And it's this instability moves up and down. Now, some people are going to probably make the claim that that's what these high-frequency traders can do is once there's the spike, they can serve as the counterweight to, you know, they'll do that high-speed, like, they'll get all the instability out of the way, and then it'll flatline and it'll stabilize after that. But that's assuming it's going to stabilize at a rate at about what it was before. And that's not a safe bet. We don't know that's going to happen. Hunsader says he doesn't know exactly how the traders make money off the volatility that they create, but he suspects they're making other trades in the milliseconds following their market-moving trade that take advantage of the relationships between this market and others that are impacted by it. The traders that move first and fastest win, he says, and this is the greatest quote from him at all, it's like two guys running in the woods, and they see a bear, and one guy drops down and puts his shoes on, and the other guy says, what are you doing that for? You can't outrun a bear. And the guy goes, I don't have to outrun the bear, I just have to outrun you. Um, then he talks about this high-speed line in between Chicago and New York. Uh, they Essentially, they drilled through mountains to shave a few milliseconds, thousands of, thousands of seconds off, getting it down to 11 milliseconds. But I think someone's figured out how to get it to zero milliseconds. That's right, man. They got the time box like in primer. Whoa, dude. We're through the rabbit hole here, people. Um yeah, and he gives examples of people making related trades in different cities at the same exact millisecond. In fact, he says, someone placing big orders in related products in both cities would gain a valuable advantage. For 11 milliseconds, they would be the only ones in the world who knew what was happening in both markets. For 11 milliseconds. I'm just stunned by this. And then here's the best quote ever. Actually, this is the best quote. The bear quote's good, but this is the best quote. The speed of light is fast. Hunsader says, but not fa- not as fast as the high-frequency traders would like it to be. So again, that joke I was making last week, yes, I was actually making jokes. I wasn't just sort of talking randomly about nothing. I was, I was doing that too, but mostly it was jokes um, about them being at the Large Hadron Collider and, and being like, get out of the way, we need to use this to send, you know, n- charge neutrinos, whatever. I don't know what it is. Uh, <laughs> they're going to try to make the speed of light go faster. And they'll do it, man. They'll find a way. These people have all the money in the universe. Uh, Hunsader says he sees these trades happening so frequently, in fact, he advises individual investors not to make any trades at all between 9.58 and 10.02 a.m. Eastern Time since many economic reports are released at exactly 10 a.m. Think about that. You're thinking, like, oh, my watch seems a little slow. Because these trades are happening, the economic reports are released, it's any new piece of data. It's like if you were to put a little bit of blood into a, t- a tank with a t- 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 with and a tank with lots of sharks in it, and they, you know, as soon as you put the drop in, the sharks all start flailing around. And that's what this these economic reports are. Any bit of data that can provide any advantage at all, they're just clamping on it. They're just... 
Clamps! I got clamps! Now, here's where it gets scary, because Oxfam released a piece where uh, they were talking about um, the rise of the machine, high frequency trading, and food prices. And this is where it gets concrete for the rest of us. It's one thing for them to be ripping off investors, and I think that's wrong, and, you know, my heart goes out to the good, you know, brick and mortar investors who aren't, they don't have the high fiber optics with the lasers and the shark repellent and all the rest of it, but... Where it really comes down to brass tacks is that people who have nothing to do with the stock market are affected, and here's how. So they wrote this. This is from Oxfam. Uh, the amount of food produced and consumed has grown gradually in the last decade, but the amount of investment interest in food commodities has skyrocketed. For the most part, investors and speculators are not actually buying food commodities. They are buying futures contracts and various financial derivatives. Volumes have grown from less than $10 billion to more than $450 billion in little over a decade. And while commodities markets once were largely composed of speculators who were directly engaged in food industries, this is we're, we're now pining for the good old days of when food speculators were actually involved in the industries. Anyway, uh, continuing from Oxfam, financial investors, index funds, hedge funds, etc., now dominate the markets. The usual explanation of the rapid movement of capital into commodities is that investors were seeking new, safer places to put money now that economic catastrophes have struck dot-coms, the stock market, the housing sector, and even government debt. So this whole thing about... Uh, you know, it was the bubble. It was the real estate bubble, and 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 along with that comes this moral hazard that a lot of free marketeers are like, well, people were buying houses they knew they couldn't afford. Screw them. Let them get kicked out of their houses. Blah. I can't wait for the food commodities speculation to go raging out of control, and then it all comes crashing down as we know it will. And then these free marketeers are going to start going, well, people shouldn't have been eating so much. Why don't you stop eating, you stupid poor people? Some analysts argue that this investor rushed into commodities has inflated food prices, but the dominant view is that this financial activity on futures contracts and derivatives doesn't really affect prices directly. That market fundamentals of supply and demand are still what determine the price of corn on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. However... The authors of a new report from the United Nations say that, quote, high-frequency trading strategies, in particular the trend-following ones, are playing a key role in the fluctuation of food prices. They argue that the financialization of commodity markets is impacting price determination, that if prices were set based on supply-demand fundamentals, there shouldn't be a correlation with equities. And this is getting into, you know, some of this technical stuff I don't really know a lot about. But, um, yeah. And, and again, like, for a lot of us in the Western world, this, this, we don't feel this very deeply because corn prices don't have a lot to do with how we feed ourselves because a lot of what we eat is processed and a lot of what we I mean even if it's organic like a lot of the stuff tends to be subsidized in some way shape or form and the market uh, doesn't fluctuate the way that it does in say Haiti and so in Haiti when people you know go to feed themselves uh, the the price can double in months for no apparent reason and a lot of it's because of what they're importing and all the rest of it so this is one example of how it can all go wrong and in a very real way for people who have nothing to do with the stock market. You may also have heard uh, about this J.P. Morgan Chase catastrophe that happened. They lost $3 billion in derivatives and speculation uh, of the same variety that they hadn't really part taken part of in the 2008 crash and um the, during the 2008 crash, uh, the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, a guy named Jamie Dimon, who's 
he uh he had this whole attitude of like well we're the smart bank and because we didn't make any of these stupid risky bets that all these other banks were doing well we don't need to be regulated and in fact none of these banks need to be regulated because we should just let the bad ones fail and blah 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 and it's never going to happen so just shut up anyway um they 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 did it too <clears throat> and it's just now coming to light, and everyone's like, we don't know what happened, and Obama's talking about we will investigate it, and I'll be very interested to see what happens with that investigation, because if it's anything like the uh, the, the crisis report that came out after the 2008 catastrophe, it'll be split up on partisan lines, and there'll be things in there about, ah, people bought houses, meh, people shouldn't buy houses, meh. Anyway, uh, Jamie Dimon said in a Telegraph article, uh, we were sloppy, uh, we've had... So we've had an audit. We've had audit, legal, risk, compliance. Some of our best people looking at all of that. We know we were sloppy. We know we were stupid. We know there was bad judgment. So again, this is and this is why there needs to be more regulation because people are always going to be sloppy. People are always going to be stupid. Why? Because that's how you get paid. And if you're only sloppy and stupid when you get caught. Let's not twist this up, okay? This is about getting caught. Because every banker would love to do what they did. They just don't have the investment capital and they don't want to get caught. So depends on whether you're going to get caught or not. And that's why government needs to step in and go, hey, you're going to get caught if you do this stuff. Not, oh, let's trust them because they probably won't be sloppy and stupid in the future. They've learned their lesson. <laughs> and speaking of which, uh, there was an opinion piece in the Los Angeles Times uh, that said, don't trust J.P. Morgan Chief's spin machine. J.P. Morgan shareholders love Diamond for all the money he's made for them over the years, and the bank's $2 billion trading loss disclosed last week doesn't cut materially into that total. So once again, we see this is that formula from Fight Club. It's A plus B plus C equals X, or times each other. Uh, if X is less than the cost of the recall, we don't do one. If they can make more money, losing all this money, and getting busted and paying fines... It, the, all of that is less than the money that they made by doing it. So, okay, yeah, they got caught and they look stupid and they have to apologize and go to Washington and go, we're sorry, we learned our lesson. And they just put it on their balance sheet and they go, okay, we had to pay some suck-up money and that's it. And meanwhile, we made $7 billion on the whole crazy trading schemes and these over-the-counter derivatives are making us billions and billions. And a $2 billion loss, eh, it's regrettable, but frankly, we can roll with it. It's not a huge deal. The proper way to think about J.P. Morgan's fiasco is that it's exactly the sort of thing that regulation should prevent banks from doing, lest they destroy the financial system again. And it's going to happen unless there's some serious change. And there have been articles this week about J.P. Morgan proves we need some real regulation, but we're not really seeing any, and we probably won't see any, because there's Republicans in the U.S. House of Representatives and the Senate, and they're all about the free market hullabaloo, and they might try to act tough during the election cycle, but it's not going to stick. They're not going to propose any actual legislation. We barely got Frank Dodd through, and that did almost nothing. And even the Volcker rules being... Uh. To say the loss won't make the bank go out of business is irrelevant in terms of regulatory policy. Just because measles typically causes American kids only to break out in spots doesn't mean we shouldn't vaccinate against it. In an unguarded population, measles, like risky derivatives investments, can kill. So amen, dude. Um, there have been some interesting stories this week about 
Europe. Um, uh, Paul Krugman was on Democracy Now! And I need to make sure I add a note for that. Uh, Paul Krugman on Democracy Now! Um, and he had some interesting things to say about Greece and the Eurozone. And I'll, I'll admit that I still don't really know enough about the origins of that catastrophe. But it, people are saying that it's going to happen. And I don't know. Um, Joseph Stiglitz, meanwhile, who uh, he was a... Um, economic advisor for the International Monetary Fund and a really interesting guy. I'm pretty sure he won a Pulitzer maybe at some point. He's a pretty famous economist. Um, he had an article in Economy Watch uh, called Europe's Man-Made Disaster. And he says, Europe as a whole is not in bad fiscal shape. The debt-to-GDP ratio compares favorably with that of the United States. If each U.S. state were totally responsible for its own budget, including paying all unemployment benefits, America too would be in fiscal crisis. The lesson is obvious. The whole is more than the sum of its parts. If Europe, especially the European Central Bank, were to borrow and relend the proceeds, the costs of servicing Europe's debt would fall, creating room for the kinds of expenditure that would promote growth and employment. This is what uh, Krugman was saying on Democracy Now!, which is spending is the way to get out of a recession. And in the case of the United States, we're perilously close to a, a depression. And Krugman was advocating for a government stimulus of a much larger scale than the one we actually had. And this austerity business that's going on all over Europe, and, you know, in the United States it has slightly different names, and we've been subject to so many so much propaganda that it's just about, you know, cutting entitlements, and you can just say... Uh, you know, let's cut on social programs. And it's like food for people. Like, oh, stupid poor people, stop eating food and we won't have to give you money for food. But these cuts, and, and the idea is like, oh, we have to balance the budget. We have to get rid of all this deficit spending. But this is the wrong time to do it. Like, right now, what we, and especially because when you give money to rich people, they're going to maybe invest it, but a lot of times they're just going to save it. They're going to put it into crazy high derivative funds experimentation and stuff that has no impact on the economy. Whereas, if you give money to poor people, they're going to run right out and buy shoes for their kids and clothes and food and stuff like that, and they're going to spend the money, and they're gonna, that's, that's the stimulus that invigorates the economy. But everyone's all, no, no, cut all that stuff. <laughs> um, Richard Primrose sent me the link about the TED talk that was too hot for TED. Uh, there was a talk from a guy, um, Hanauer, I don't remember his full name, but uh, yeah, Nick Hanauer. And I had actually, I don't know if I put it here or I posted it on the blog once upon a time, but he had a really interesting piece once upon a time where he said, Look, I'm a millionaire. I was one of the first non-family investors in Amazon.com. Uh, I, I made a lot of money investing in companies. I'm not a job creator. And his whole thing is, we're not job creators, okay? People who spend money are job creators because that's what stimulates companies. And look, companies aren't just going to grow just because they're like, I have some extra money. I think I'll grow my company. No. Business folk know that you grow a company when there's demand. And if there's no demand, there's no point in growing your company. So that's really where job creation happens. It's not just because Rich people are like, I have some extra money. I think I'll just grow. Why not? No, it's about demand. Anyway, so there was this whole hullabaloo about, oh, Ted wouldn't, and Ted is a website that posts a lot of very interesting talks from a lot of cool people, and Amy Tan did one, and there's a really good one from a woman, a poet. I can't remember her name, but I'll, I'll, I'll look it up at some point if people want me to. Um, and, uh, yeah, there's a lot of really good talks at Ted, and they had one... Uh, so they had this talk that Nick Hanauer gave at Ted University in March 1st. Um, 
and and the the thrust of the article that from nationaljournal.com was oh you can't find it online initially the ted officials told him they were eager to distribute it uh but then they changed their course and they said that his remarks were too political and too controversial well one of the coordinators at TED said, no, that's totally bogus. That's not what happened. Um, and they wrote, at TED, we post one talk a day on our homepage. We're drawing from a pool of 250 that we record on our own conferences each year and up to 10,000 speeches recorded at various TEDx events around the world, not to mention other conference partners. Our policy is to post only talks that are truly special, and we try to steer clear of talks that are bound to descend into the same dismal partisan headbutting that people f- can find every day elsewhere in the media. And the point was that that was pretty much what was happening with this talk and that it was flawed. And, and But it wasn't because it was too political. It was because it was basically a partisan you know speech about the Republicans are doing stupid things. And, and as much as many of the individuals involved in TED agree with that point of view, they wanted to only post talks that are more enlightened, that go beyond that simple, you know, Republicans, bad, Democrats, good. Um, so they said they're going to probably make it available at some point because they don't have anything to hide about this talk, but it's nothing political. It's nothing to do with anything scandalous or anything. Uh, National Review or National Journal, whatever the website was, uh, they just sort of got caught up in the hype that Hanauer himself was basically trying to spin. And I was, you know, intrigued by that article when I first saw it. But, and it's good to know that Ted isn't engaged in that kind of like putting the kilbosh on stuff. It's just, you know, they got a lot of stuff to sift through. And I don't blame them for not putting everything out there. And I, I probably will want to watch this talk at some point. I, you know, I like what he has to say, but. Ted, it's good that Ted's staking their claim to something different. It's not just, here's good talks, here are talks that are really important and really interesting. And now, news about education. Uh, there's an article in Forbes, the New Year Forbes. I was going to say New York Times because that's what I thought it was, but I was wrong. Oh, I hate being wrong. Anyway, uh, Forbes had this article, uh, the headline was, Is Higher Education a Giant Pyramid Scheme? And it says, if you listen to Bill Hazelton, founder of CreditCardAssist.com, the answer is yes. Higher education in this country has turned into a giant pyramid scheme. With tuition prices exploding, students are graduating with $50,000, $100,000, and $200,000 in student loan debt and can't find jobs that could possibly support their loan payments, let alone their living expenses. And this is one of the points that Mike Moore, this is not in the article now, uh, Mike Moore pointed this out that, you know, if you have all this debt, you have much less options much less options. Can you tell I'm an English teacher? You have many fewer options about where you're going to work because you got to get a job that pays really well in order to pay off this incredible debt you have accrued during the course of your college education. And I understand that college is funded very differently overseas. So people in the UK, let me know how college is funded over there because I could look it up, but I'm a busy man. I don't have time for that. Um, yeah, I'm a really busy man. Listen, I don't have time to play with the phone here. I got a lot of stuff I got to get done. Quote, the math simply doesn't work. I can't tell you how many times I've heard about newly minted college grads with massive student loans and very few job prospects. It's horrifying to see. Um, Yeah. And the other interesting article about education this week uh, came from, this was the one from the New York Times. Okay, see, I'm not insane, people. I'm really not. I just got to get my tinfoil hat on right. Um, What's up, Diane? Doing work in the garden? How do you say? Yeah. Hi. Yeah, uh, it's fascinating listening for the people on the podcast, I know. See, she's not going to have to listen to the show because she's here listening to me do it live. Do it live! I'll write it, we'll do it live! The freaking thing sucks! 
the article in the New York article the article in the New York Times said uh, headline a New York City Education Department rules on social media and this is a question that's come up a lot over the last five ten years because social media is this new thing that de- education departments and districts of schools have never had to wrestle with before I mean there have always been rules obviously about don't get too buddy buddy with your students and it's weird if you call them a lot and whatever but now with cell phones and twittering and texting and oh I should play that Twitter song from the veteran gamers Hit it! It's all pretty girl. Just, uh, the di- no, um, but no. The the point is that it's 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 stuff that the school districts have had to try to wrestle with, and they don't want to tell teachers, "Hey, you can never Twitter with students. You can never engage them on social media." Especially when so many students spend so much of their time on the social media, it could be a really good educational opportunity if teachers can sort of find a way to get in there and really use the social media in a way that's educational rather than just wasting time like so much of it is but how do you do that how do you balance it and it's really tough and i don't envy people in positions of authority in school districts and other places where they have to try to figure out like okay what are the rules going to be and there's a really interesting case in the connecticut um uh, federal court in Connecticut uh, that was just fascinating and I'll tell you all about that in a minute first let me read from the article uh, the guidelines that the New York City School Department just came out with uh, do not ban teachers from using social media and in fact recognize that it can offer tremendous educational benefits nor do they address cell phones and text messaging between teachers and students which according to a review by the New York Times of dozens of education department in- investigations over the past five years have been more widespread and problematic the guidelines do say in general that teachers should maintain separate professional and personal web pages. I'm way ahead of you there, dude. Not only that, but I have professional I have professional and personal separate Twitter accounts. That's how on top of things I am. Booyah! What? Uh, quote, they may not email friend or otherwise communicate with students via the teacher's or student's personal pages. Teachers also should use privacy settings, quote, to control access to their personal social media sites. Or you can turn yourself into Ned Flanders, which is what I've pretty much done. So I I don't really have a lot of fear that people are going to find me on social media sites because what there's nothing to find. It's just me riding my bike and the tour de team with, hey, look at him. Um, yeah, uh, Chiara Coletti, a spokeswoman for the Principals Union, the Council of School Supervisors and Administrators, said that the guidelines appear to be, quote, overboard. Quote, we are concerned that our principals will be expected to bear the burden of monitoring social media activities that are, in fact, almost impossible to monitor, she said. And this is, I think, where we really get to the heart of it, because if you want to make sure, I mean, on the one hand, if you want to make sure the teachers aren't crossing the line, everything on the Internet stays there, which is a good thing. I mean, you can take stuff down, but Facebook can get to stuff even when you've taken it down. Let's not kid ourselves, right? Um, so that trail of data and the the degree to which we're all being watched all the time when we're online means that it's really hard to remove something from the internet. And so I think there are tools that can help administrators and principals and stuff to um, clamp down on inappropriate contact between teachers and students. On the other hand, you know, in the same way that the NSA can track communication more easily than ever before, there's so much more communication they have to try to sift through than ever before, and that's a monumental chore. It's really hard to figure out where's the signal and where's the noise. And so I don't envy people who have to do that. So it's an interesting development, and I'll be interested to see where it goes in New York City and elsewhere. Um, 
by and large, I think our guidelines at the school where I teach have been pretty obvious. And, and I think most teachers have a sense of, you know, like where to draw the line. And, and I always err way on the side of caution. Like I generally don't touch my students at all. Like I give a high five here and there because um, you don't want anything. It might seem innocent to you, but the person might think you're being weird, right? Or, you know, sketchy. So I always tell people, you know, hey, when you're teaching, like just keep, you respect that personal space. Don't prod and pry into their personal lives and stuff. If they have a problem they want to come to you with, okay, they'll come to you, right? But counselors are trained to help people with therapy problems and whatnot. So I always tell them, like, just don't, don't. And and Facebook and stuff, I tell my students, I'm like, no way, man. The day you graduate, you can friend me on Facebook, but not before then. And I'm not going to play Xbox Live with you. I'm not going to, unless I accidentally wind up in a lobby. And then it happened once. Uh, but by and large, you know, like, yeah, just, I, hey, I, I tell them like this. I'm going to keep my work and, li- and home life separate because that's the way I like to do with any job. Uh, so whatever. But the Connecticut Supreme, not Supreme Court, I always want to say Supreme Court. It wasn't a Connecticut Supreme Court case. It was a federal case, uh, 576FSUPP.2D292, District Court, D, Connecticut, 2008. Jeffrey Spanierman, plaintiff, versus Abigail L. Hughes, Ann Druzolowski, and Lisa Hawa, defendants. Number 3.06CV, uh, whatever. Um... The U.S. District Court in Connecticut, fascinating. September 16, 2008, there was this dude, okay, uh, Jeffrey Spanierman, and he was teaching at this school district, um, and <laughs> he got, okay, most school districts do this thing, uh, and he was at Emmett O'Brien High School uh, in Ansonia, Connecticut. So most school district, this school, the, the Emmett O'Brien, like most schools, um, had this probation period where when you first get hired, you're sort of renewed every year. And if they want us to keep, if they want you to keep, if they want to keep you around, they'll renew your contract at the end of the first year, and they'll renew it at the end of the second year. And then if your school, if your district has a tenure system, then you'll get tenure after a certain number of years. He wasn't on tenure. He didn't. He was on year-to-year renewal and. They can just let you go. They don't have to give a reason. They don't have to tell you why they're letting you go. They don't have to be specific. They don't have to, you know, allow you any due process. It's just, thank you for your time. We don't want you to come back next year. So that's what happened with him. And he lost his mind. He was like, you can't do that. This is because of my space and my poetry, which is too political for the man. And so he sued them. And it went all the way to this federal court. And... The I I you know what I'm gonna put the Google Scholar post from this court case on because the decision the order from the judge was is just it's the most riveting court decision I've ever read in my life. Um, first of all, there's this whole thing about how MySpace works in this official court ruling. They break down the functions of MySpace. Oh, it is a website that allows users to create an online community where they can meet people. Blah blah blah. People with MySpace accounts can create a profile to which they can link their friends and the owner of the profile can either invite people to become friends or other MySpace users, blah, blah, blah. So I just found it amusing, hilarious that they're going through like how MySpace works for the sake of the law. Okay, a lot of people in the courtroom might not know how MySpace works, circa 2008. Um, anyway, uh, in the, so there are, there are all these questions about like, what was he doing? What was he talking with his kids about on MySpace? And from what I can tell, a lot of it was pretty sketchy. Uh, so yeah, there were a lot, and he was talking about, oh, you know, they didn't like what I was saying and, and, and what he was saying was pretty messed up. And then they have all this, um, 
antecedent stuff and oh freedom of speech and blah 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 uh and get to his poetry hang on we'll get to his poetry in just a second uh Ars Technica had a good uh, example of what he was posting on MySpace and it was it was stuff that was like uh the very peer to, this was in the decision it was the, it, his discussions with students were very peer to peer like and he was not talking about you know professional stuff um <laughs> Repco and Ashley sitting in a tree. K I S S I N G. This is from a teacher at a high school posting this on MySpace. And then later he wrote, or a student wrote, uh, Don't be jealous because you can't get any. And then Spanierman wrote, What makes you think I want any? I'm not jealous. I just like to have fun and goof on you guys. If you don't like it, kiss my brass. L M A O. And, uh,. I just, it's so juvenile and pathetic. I think if he didn't get his uh, contract renewed just because he was being juvenile and pathetic, that in and of itself would be enough. I'd be like, come on, dude. Seriously, you are a teacher. Step it up. But the gem of this case, and I remember reading this years when it first came out, I was like, I gotta find this original text. (laughs) This biggest bugbear was... They don't like my poetry. The man is intimidated by my virulent stance against the Iraq war. And it's it's because my poetry is too hard-cutting and, and too real. It reminds me of Bart Simpson when they're doing that episode when he's like, uh, in the future, and they're and Lisa's the president, and Bart's like, "Man, nobody's gonna give me a job because I'm too real. They can't handle what I'm putting down." And meanwhile, it's like he's just lazy and he's pathetic. Uh, so they quoted the war poem. The title of this entry on the profile page is quote war poem parenthesis lyrics end parenthesis whatever end quote. So that's what. According to the plaintiff, his, quote, opposition to the Iraq war was elegantly articulated in this poem. And then they quote the whole poem. I'm going to read it to you. This is magic. The damage is done. Nowhere to run. Nowhere. N-O space W-H-E-R-E. And the capitalization is all over the place. Like, he's he's apparently got caps lock on some sort of weird mutant, like, on again, off again thing. And there's all these sick, 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 sick indicating this is how it is in the original. Uh, the sand and sun aren't any fun. <laughs> they rain down all day in the fields where soldiers lay sick. And it's sick because if, if the soldiers are currently lying there now, then it's lie. And he probably meant to say lie, but he didn't know what he was talking about because he's an idiot. Their firearms held tightly. Their steps fall lightly. They walk. This is like this is like what what strong sad might write. Strong sad can write better poetry than this. I shouldn't. That's an insult to strong sad. This is Homsar level poetry. <laughs> they walk for the enemy. A man, woman, or child they see. There's that simple rhyme. I'm always one of my students. Not he could be any of the three. In houses they go hoping bombs won't explode for war of revenge that has no end. The commander and chief. Commander and Chief, really? Uh, Much like a thief will steal away at the dawn of the day, but how many will die for America's apple pie, period? You don't put a question mark there, you put a period, man. That's how you know that you're elegantly expressing your uh, opposition to the Iraq war. Uh, The the slice of history will remain a mystery. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the freedom we value is being stolen away from a new people each and every day. One word, every day. Sick. The soldiers then cry, watching friends die. Defending our nation, they all find salvation. What the? 
what are you talking about? They protect the peace and and continue to head east, sick, to to a land of sand and sun that isn't any fun and leaves them nowhere. Two words to run. Oh God! And then there with the what the judge writes here is just the most beautiful thing ever written in a legal decision ever. Leaving aside the question of whether one could call this bit of poetastry an elegant articulation of the current conflict in Iraq, the court concludes that, construing all ambiguities in favor of the plaintiff, the poem could constitute a political statement. That one, that is, one could consider this poem to be an expression of the plaintiff's opposition to the Iraq War. As such, it would be protected speech under the First Amendment. However, he goes on to say that's all a bunch of hogwash, and here's why these legal decisions, and shut up, Spanierman. Um, so, yeah, I just, the whole thing is just pathetic, and he's got all these lulls in here, and, um, it's, I would never threaten you, blah, 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 you can serve detention, and, I mean, you know, it's just ridiculous, and LMAO, and all the rest of it. Um, so, this was an important case in terms of, like, where are those lines going to get drawn, and, well, I would say that if you're worried about, you know, crossing any kind of lines with students, first of all, don't write stupid poetry and post it online. And then obviously, don't friend students. Don't. I mean, he was crossing so many lines, and he should have realized that he was over the line. He's just a moron. And, uh, yeah. And now, killer robots. Where's your bathroom? Bath what? Bathroom. And what other bathroom? miscellaneous what, what? topics. Ah, never mind. Hey, sexy mama. Want to kill all humans? Uh, Phil O. sent me a thing from the Daily Mail called uh, What Could Possibly Go Wrong? Which is all about uh, U.S. Army war robots to making decisions on their own. And we've pretty much covered this. Um, so I won't read extensively from it. But uh, it's, you know, trucks that drive themselves are already under test. Military is testing autonomous robots that follow soldiers. And there's a picture of... It looks like something out of Limbo, if you played that video game. Um, and they got trucks that... I mean, it's a pretty decent article, which I was surprised. Like, Daily Mail doing an in-depth investigation. Like, what's up with that? Anyway, um, yeah, it's worth a read. I mean, it's interesting, you know, of the 6,000 robots fielded so far, including the 2100 now in Afghanistan. Uh, most of them have been small, remotely operated systems, blah, blah, blah. But in the future, they're going to try to do more autonomous stuff. And to be honest, I mean, as far as I can tell, the autonomous stuff is just about saving money and having more of them because if you can have them if you don't need somebody to drive these robots then they can you can just set them loose and let them go now that's the scary part for me like when you just set them loose and let them go like what does that mean what are they going to have the decision to do and whatever i've been through this a million times so i'm not going to belabor the point especially when bristol palin's in the news i set up a google alert for sarah palin and so i'm getting news about sarah palin and there's some big new hubbub because she picked a a woman who's running for U.S. House or something, and she said she gave her support for it, and then like the woman won, and she probably wouldn't have won otherwise. And it was like, oh, Sarah Palin has so much clout. Oh my God, Sarah Palin! Blah. But now I'm getting Sarah Palin. Con- Who gives a crap? Bristol Palin's talking about, oh, I'm condemning this, and I think this is wrong. And you know what? Why Bristol Palin? Really? It's bad enough that Sarah Palin is relevant on a national political stage, but Bristol Palin, her daughter, uh, give me a break. Why does anyone care what she thinks? I mean, it's bad enough that I pay attention to Sarah Palin because I think she's fascinating in the same way that, like, a dog, you know, chewing on a dead raccoon is interesting. Um, But, yeah, I don't know. But 
But speaking of but, uh, there's an article in Future of Tech, the MSNBC blog about technology, and the headline is "Robotic Butt is Even Stranger Than It Sounds." This is a they made a robot butt, and I'll give you five guesses where this came from. That's right, it's from Japan. Uh, the creators of this is from the article. The creators of this robot robotic butt don't seem to have any practical considerations in mind at all. It's not a medical accessory or a therapeutic device. It's just a twitching, quivering, hissing robotic butt. The creators say that the robot called Shiri quote represents emotions with visual and tactual transformation of the muscles. Furthermore, it is an attempt to quote approach the creation of sensitive and subtle expression by a humanoid robot using organic constructs. Also, it's a butt. No, they didn't say that. But but that's what it and it's just so weird. It's like I I would love to see a Beavis and Butthead episode where they watch a news report about this. <laughs> it's a butt. It's just a butt. That's the this is the greatest invention that has ever been invented by any inventor. In pursuit of this goal, the creators naturally chose the most expressive organ, the butt. <laughs> it's a robotic butt. Hey Stu, you should look this up because I'm sure you could find video of it, and I bet that would just tickle you endlessly. Hip hop. Uh, this week I want to tell you about a group called New Kingdom, and I will shout out Nathan Walker, who is the one who first introduced me to them back in the day at New College. Uh, they put out two albums, uh, one was called Heavy Load, and the other one was called uh, Paradise Don't Come Cheap, and they were really unusual. I mean, if you were to take, let's see, how can I describe New Kingdom? If you were to take De La Soul and mix them with some Jimi Hendrix and... Um, some Pink Floyd in there, I think, for good measure, and then, but recorded it all on really lo-fi equipment. You'd have New Kingdom, and they really have the. There's some Beck in there, I think you could say as well. Like, there's that definitely, you know, kind of like mixing genres and just sort of bringing folk and and soul and really grimy blues samples and stuff, and just mixing it all together. It's like a gumbo of sound. New Kingdom was, and uh, it's a shame they only put out two albums, but. Uh, they probably did some solo stuff that I never looked up, uh, but it's just really interesting, and it's it's stuff, you know, they had one song called Headhunter, and, and a lot of it was kind of like amorphous, and, and some of it was kind of explicitly environmental on Heavy Load, because it was, you know, this kind of green idea, uh, but they were also interested in some trip-hop and dub stuff, and so when a collection came out called Macro Dub Infection, which is a really good collection, I encourage you to check that out, that had Lyca on it, and... Um, Aphex Twin, I think, and Omni Trio, and lots of other really cool groups. Anyway, New Kingdom had a track on there. I was like, what's that about? And they had this one called, like, Murder Your Enemies or something like that. And it was just like, yeah, yeah. And surprisingly, it's a really good song. It sounds bad, I know. The way I'm singing it, it's not good. But uh, let me play you something from um, Unicorns or Horses, which is a song off of their Paradise Don't Come Cheap album. Unicorns or Horses, nowadays when I write the voices and my voices got me running through mazes, dropping down super highways, blazing phrases, my ways is dangerous. On an open road, that is still got me trucked in this heavy load. Guess it just be like that sometimes. Guess it just be like that sometimes. <laughs> 
fans of the Goonies will recognize that bit about, hey, you guys, is what Chunk yells when he busts out from his fetters. And uh, I don't know if that's a sample or them singing it, but uh, I, I remember the first time I heard that, I was like, oh, my God, that's from the Goonies. Yes, hey, you guys. And they've worked it in so well. It's just really beautiful. So check them out. New Kingdom, good stuff. Uh, very unusual, very different from your average stuff. And I'd say the closest you're going to get to them nowadays would probably be like, I mean, Odd Future in a way, just because they're so weird and bizarre. But Odd Future is also stupid and annoying and sexist and hideous. And I mean, their whole thing is like, eh. Yeah, kill everybody, but it's just like whatever, man. You know what? Grave Diggers did it twice as good 20 years ago, so just get off my back. Uh, anyway, yeah, New Kingdom, check them out. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Stop repenting because the ending is near, but don't panic. You can't function if you live in a fear. Pay attention, you gotta listen to hear. Uh, the quote from the week comes to us from, actually, you know what? I didn't realize this. I did when I watched it, but then I forgot. And so I was looking for this quote online and I real I remembered that they had, uh, some bubbles on the wire, which is a great TV show. If you've never seen the wire, Oh, stop what you're doing and watch it. Cause it's, it's probably one of the best TV shows ever to be produced. I mean, okay. The Simpsons takes the comedy slot, obviously, but I'd say in terms of drama, like the wire and Oz and let's see what other show would be in the top spot for American drama. Uh, th those two are probably my favorites of all time. Uh, I mean, Downton Abbey would, might be up there for British TV, but whatever. Anyway, so The Wire is a great TV show, and there's this character named Bubbles who is a recovering drug addict, and he's a really interesting dude, and he's just so charismatic, and you, you know, you're really pulling for him, and uh, he's got his ups and downs, obviously. Anyway, at one point, this dude, uh, I think he's played by Steve Earle, don't quote me on that, but anyway, his sort of sponsor for the drug rehab program uh, slips him a piece of paper, and he reads from it, and it was the quote that I was looking for, so I was like, yes! So here's the quote from The Wire, where Bubbles is reading it. You can hold back from the suffering of the world. You have free permission to do so, and it is in accordance with your nature. But perhaps this very holding back is the one suffering you could have avoided. Fonzie Kafka. Who's he? Some writer. Uh, Franz Kafka was a superb postmodern German writer. And don't let that word postmodern scare you. I throw it in there because I think it describes what he was writing, but he was a he was just a really interesting guy like he was trying to break the break the mold you know and he did a really good job of it and uh, he wrote the trial and he wrote the metamorphosis which is about the dude I mean the first sentence of the metamorphosis is probably the greatest first sentence in any story any short story ever written uh, and, and it is um, after a night of unsettling dreams uh, Gregor Samsa awoke to find he had been transformed into a giant insect a giant vermin. It's from German, so it's translated, obviously. Uh, and it's just, it's a fascinating story. I gave it to my AP students this year, and they were like, what is this thing? And uh, But that's that's the way he wrote, because that's the way a lot of us see life, you know? Many things in life are confusing. And uh, he did a great job of describing the confusing and impossible nature of bureaucracies and modern life in general and the family, and he took on uh, punishment and crime in the trial and in the, in the penal colony. And uh, The Castle is just a really interesting and bizarre book, and I can't say enough about Franz Kafka. I don't know that I can recommend his book America all that much, because, I mean, it's got important stuff in it, but by and large, I don't think it's his greatest work, and it was unfinished when he died, so that that may account for some of it, but I hope that he would have thought, oh, I need to revise this significantly because it's not that great. Anyway, uh, yeah, Franz Kafka is awesome, and I love the quote because it really has a lot to do with um, 
So many people, I think, do hold back from, from being aware of what's going on and trying to hide from all the suffering in the world. But you know what? The more you hide from it, the more it will weigh on you. And, and, and you'll also never get that sense of like being able to resist. And the quote I gave from Ossie Davis is about like, the more you resist, the more able you are to resist. So this hiding, this running away from, this, like, it, this willful ignorance that I see so much, I mean, it sucks. And trust me, like, it's only going to hold you back because it is that suffering you can avoid. It is that sense of helplessness that you're going to feel because you think that everything's too big and there's no way we can do anything about anything. It's not true. And the tour de Timor proved it. You like how I came full circle for that? Anyway, that's it, folks. Show notes and links to everything in this week's podcast are on my blog, Didactic Synapse, which is at fbesp.org slash synapse. My website is The Floating Brain of Eric S. Piotrowski. Just leave the synapse off that with links to music and fiction and multimedia and other stuff I've made. Shoutouts this week to Robert White. Uh, when I said last week that my podcast was, quote, award-winning, asterisk, not really, he wrote, quote, I hereby award you with the inaugural best podcast posted on a Tuesday in May of 2012 by a friend of Bob's award. You may now de-asterisk in good conscience uh, asterisk asterisk this award is non-transferable has no cash value I thought that was funny thank you Bob Shout outs also to Phil and Stu and John and Master Zulu and everyone who left such kind reviews on the UK iTunes. I am humbled by your feedback and support. Uh, as always, I don't have a whole lot of time to edit this thing. I just got done with a bike ride. I got to do laundry. It's my, it's the rapping man come to do his laundry. Uh, so I apologize if there are dumb things that I forgot to cut out. I'm a very busy man. Deal with Listen, it. Listen, I don't have time to play with the phone here. I got a lot of stuff I got to get done. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Please get in touch with feedback or questions or news articles you find you think might be interesting. ESP at FBESP.org. I will stop talking now. Didactic Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of Ribonucleic Records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOAR for details. Fight the power. So powerful.